Okay, we are live. Hello to everyone that is watching us on Odyssey, on Rumble, on YouTube, and on the Duran.locals.com. We have with us once again the great Jeffrey Sachs, director for the Center for Sustainable Development, Columbia University. Mr. Sachs, Professor Sachs, it is great to have you with us again. How are you this morning? Very good. Good to be back with you guys. Great, great. And of course, we have with us Alexander Merkurs in London. Alexander, how are you? I'm very well. All right. We are ready to go. Uh, hello to our moderators. A quick hello to our, to our moderators. Thank you very much for everything that you do for all the help that you give us, GEC812. It is good to see you here. And I will also be helping out in moderating. Alan Watson, good to have you with us. Alexander Mercuris, Jeffrey Sachs, uh, what should we talk about? BRICS, neocons, oil price uh, production cuts, Ukraine, Russia. Let's, let's get started. There's lots to cover. <clears throat> well, 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 why don't we start with BRICS? Because I, I understand that Professor Sachs has just been to Beijing. And of course, there's been a whole troop of people going to Beijing. We've had Prime Minister Sanchez there. We're going to have President Macron of France there. Ursula von der Leyen, the President of the European Commission, is there. The I believe there are more European visitors heading towards Beijing. But of course, Jeffrey Sachs has been there on the spot, taking, gauging the mood in Beijing. And to my mind, the fact that all these important people are going to Beijing in its sense, tells its own story. It says that Beijing is the place where a lot of decisions are being made. And I don't know what your feelings about that are, Professor Sachs, and what the mood was, what you found there. Yeah, it's pretty amazing, uh, actually, this, uh, uh, this uh, stream of uh, delegations uh, going. I, I think it is the, the new shape of the world. Uh, I found the Chinese leadership to be in uh, good spirits, I would say, uh, not uh, very calm in a, in a real uh, Chinese uh, dignified way. Uh, I had a chance to uh, see the new premier in action, uh, met with several of the cabinet uh, ministers uh, at uh, a three-day gathering of uh, business leaders and, and some academics and so on. And, and the mood is actually, you know, very uh, calm, uh, rather insistent that um, the world needs to get itself uh, right uh, and that it is not uh, right right now, but that uh, China's uh, view of things, uh, you know, can uh, push developments forward. Um, uh, the foreign minister spoke uh, very well uh, about uh, China creating a, a new multilateralism, uh, about uh, China forging uh, new expanded relations all over the world. Uh, the economics uh, team, uh, which I met, was rather optimistic, actually. You know, this is a, a, an expanding economy this year, and the Asian Development Bank just issued its uh, report uh, 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 increasing its forecast for 
Asian growth overall for the nearly 50 countries that they track. So Asia looks very different from our view, uh, you know, from from the North Atlantic region, which is uh, in crisis, uh, uh, unpopular leaders uh, everywhere, uh, a lot of economic turmoil, a banking crisis, uh, geopolitical crisis. Uh, the view from China is really quite different and, and uh, very impressive in that regard. I think you're on mute, Alexander. Oh, I am. There you go. Yes. Uh, uh, um, Since you met the economics team, I was just going to say, uh, ask this question, because one of the things you read a lot here in the British media, at least, is that there's been a sort of regression in Chinese economic policy, that they're taking a much more interventionist uh, uh, line, that they're going back on some of the reforms that they carried out. Do you get any of that impression at all? I mean, I haven't seen myself any sign of this from afar, but that is what people are saying. I mean, it's a change of direction. Look, the the message is uh, quite the contrary, which uh, this was actually a gathering in which uh, the uh, Chinese leadership kept uh, emphasizing, you know, we're open for business, we're reopened after uh, after COVID, uh, but we're open uh, geopolitically uh, for all regions Mm -hmm. of the world. I think the only place where you see uh, that, uh, you know, taking place is is not in broad economic strategy, but in reaction to the U.S. technology uh, attempts to uh, choke uh, China on uh, advanced uh, semiconductors and and other high tech. And what what they're doing there is uh, reacting in in the sense of saying we're going to achieve our own self-sufficiency in these key technologies in a relatively short period of time. And I'm pretty optimistic that they will, because there's a long history of the U.S. uh, attempts to contain technology. Technology doesn't stay contained the way that uh, the the U.S. wants. Uh, You can go back to, uh, you know, actually the the, uh, atomic bomb, where the U.S. said, we'll have a monopoly on this for 30 years, uh, and it turned out to be three years. And this is how technology is. There are a lot of smart people. Uh, China's mass-producing engineers (laughs) of the the top rank uh, as well. But that's the only place where I would say, uh, you know, you have this uh, kind of uh, reaction. Otherwise, China's expanding the Belt and Road Initiative. Uh, It's absolutely expanding its economic relations uh, with the Middle East, we know, uh, with uh, Latin America. Uh, And my feeling is one of the most pivotal things for us to watch is uh, China-India relations. And I think that those are going to improve uh, markedly, actually, in in the coming months uh, and years. And that may be the most important bilateral relationship, actually, in the world. The two giant countries, India's growing quite rapidly now on, on the basis of uh, digitalization. Uh, and if the two, which I think they have every reason to, say, you know, we're basically in the same position trying to create a, a space in a multipolar world, that, that will be a very big deal. And I got the sense both in China and in India that there's pretty deep recognition of, of that reality. 
because it's, I think, fair to say that there have been periods. There was a period just after India gained independence and China, uh, you know, the Communist Party came to power in China when there was in the 50s, when India and China were very good, were on very good terms and actually uh, were working together very effectively on international affairs. So this would, in a sense, be a revert, a reversion to this. Is this going to happen because it's rather positive that they feel that they need to do this because it's in their joint interests? Or is it a negative because they feel that there are pressures on them that they need to resist? And that means coming to terms with each other. You know, I, I think it's because it's uh, absolutely natural that there should be cooperation. And the one thing that, you know, hinders it is actually border disputes in the high Himalayas that have no major significance for either country at all. I don't want to completely dismiss them, but they can work out pragmatically that that is not a, any basis at all for derailing what should be extremely important eco economic ties, just straight trade and technology ties hmm. should be very important. But then all the geopolitics that they both absolutely see eye to eye that we need to move past a, a Western-led world, which is exactly what's taking shape before our eyes these weeks and months. That by itself would be sufficient also to say we, uh, we have a, a good cause for coordination. So I see it as a pretty deep reason for cooperation, and I think it's going to come. Do you think when you were in Beijing, um, I mean, because, again, a lot of talk about China suddenly becoming aggressive, thinking about war in Taiwan, were they in a war mood? I mean, was that at all evident or you said that they were calm and optimistic? That suggests on the contrary that they're not, that this is not really, again, what they're about at, at all at the moment. Well, you know, it's also the style of Chinese diplomacy, completely the opposite of saber rattling or announcing uh, threats and war. It, every word that we heard from every cabinet member, Politburo member, the premier was about peace, multilateralism, cooperation the need for sustainable development, the openness for business. It was, look, it was a charm offensive to begin with, but that's also telling. Uh, it was not that we're in deep crisis, we're about to go to war, we're mobilizing, no one should uh, threaten us. You know, they may say that in other venues, but that is certainly not the style or the feel of the diplomacy. The feel of the diplomacy is let's reduce tensions. There's no reason for them. Uh, we have business to do. Uh, we have uh, challenges to meet, including common challenges like the energy transition. They really believe that, and for very good reason. And they know they have a lot of internal development issues as well. They're aiming for the next quarter century to make huge advances in quality of life in China. They face, like everybody, the aging population and other things. So there were there was lots of interesting substantive talk about quality of life and normal issues. But war was not the discussion. What was the discussion was we need to have a peaceful, multilateral world without threats. So we really need to calm down and uh, and work together. And that was 
absolutely the rhetoric at every point. It's very interesting that you said that the big relationship could be India-China, which by the way, I completely agree with. But of course, that's not what most people are saying. Most people are still saying that the big relationship is China, the United States. What is the feeling about the United States? Is it exasperation? Is it fear? Are people becoming angry with the policies or are they still saying to themselves, well, maybe this is just a, you know, period of tension, but it will pass. We'll be able to get back with the US uh, before long. I, I think the main mood was a, a bit of perplexity and exasperation. Uh, I had at least 100 people come up to me and said, what's going on in your country? You know, we, we don't understand it. Uh, where is this anti-China animus coming from? Uh, we don't get it. Uh, so there's there really is a perplexity. Uh, there was, a, you know, in high level discussions that I was happy to have a real question. Why is there the war in Ukraine? You know, why did the U.S. push? Uh, what's the basis of this? Why does this make sense? Uh, and so forth. And so I think there was puzzlement because the U.S. is you know, underperforming its fundamentals. Let's put it this way. This is a, a country uh, in a bit of a self-created collapse of foreign policy. Uh, it's losing friends and influence, not just because of a gradual shift of the world, but because it's making poor choices everywhere, making threats, wagging fingers, telling major countries what to do, what not to do. And it's, you know, viewed in a with puzzlement because uh, they're not saying, well, we're afraid. What's the U.S. going to do? But, you know, doesn't the U.S. want any friends anymore? Is, is this really uh, just growling uh, expected to get somewhere? So I think there's mostly perplexity, <clears throat> a lot of annoyance, no doubt, uh, especially over an overt U.S. foreign policy that says on its face, our aim is to hinder China's economy. You know, it's quite a foreign policy. It's not directed uh, at uh, any specific thing. It's, 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 it's taken as uh, normal that U.S. politicians would say China's uh, economic development is not in our interest. Oh, it's pretty arrogant position. So I think there's annoyance at that. But I wouldn't say that uh, this was the overwhelming concern. Uh, I think the feeling of, and it makes sense from China's perspective, is, you know, if the U.S. is going to be that way, we've, we've got another 96% of the world population to deal with. It's a, it's a little bit weird. We're not anti-U.S. We'd, uh, you know, be happy to have normal relations. Uh, but I think the feeling is we can move on also. And uh, and I think that feeling makes sense, actually. Uh, this makes sense in many of the areas where I'm working, uh, trying to, you know, push uh, for a more effective global financial system and so on, mm. where the U.S. is definitely the laggard. Uh, you say, oh, you can't pass any, you know, constructive reforms through Congress. But my feeling is, OK, if the U.S. doesn't want to play, there's there's the rest of the world uh, to to move forward. And I think that that really is 
the Chinese view, and and I think the Indians are you know coming to that view as well that we got a lot of issues at home, we have a lot of issues internationally, and we're not going to let one country and its snarling and its sanctions and its unilateral measures and its uh, reports about us uh, tell us what to do. Because one of the most interesting things over the last few weeks, months, is the amount of deals that are being done without the United States. I mean, we've had this breakthrough deal between uh, um, Iran and Saudi Arabia, brokered by China. We now have what looks like a reconciliation between Syria and Saudi Arabia as well. We're having moves, as you correctly, I, I mean, I'm sure you're right, by the way, about in India and China coming together. We've had uh, Putin, Putin meeting Xi Jinping in Moscow. And from what I can understand, that was also mainly about economics, not arms or anything of that kind. Do you think there's any chance, though, because this is the other thing they always talk about, is that China will now step in and try to mediate the Ukraine war, that this is, this is the next move that the Chinese are planning on. Again, I have to say, I don't actually personally see much sign of this, but what, what, did you, what sense about that did you get? in Beijing, maybe? You know, I think the Chinese view is, is on, on the war is very clear, which is uh, this war is not good for the world. It's, first of all, not good for Ukraine. Uh, it should stop. Uh, it is a war to a very significant extent about NATO expansion, which uh, China certainly uh, does not uh, uh, support. In fact, it regards as... Uh, pretty irresponsible of the U.S. Uh, and so I think China's main message from the start, and it was in my discussions as well, China says there are uh, security interests of both Ukraine and Russia that need to be met. That's the, the key sentence of everything that China has said and everything that China's put on the table, and I agree with it 100%. <clears throat> to my mind, it means the core of ending this war is uh, President Biden saying NATO will not enlarge anymore, basically, and it will not enlarge uh, to Ukraine and to Georgia. That was the, uh, the, the fundamental cause of uh, all of this going back 20 years, in my view. Um, and I think it's China's understanding of this as well and why China absolutely will uh, support Russia in that basic point. Russia has real security interests in not having NATO uh, surrounded in the Black Sea region, not have it in Ukraine and Georgia. It's been my feeling for 30 years, that basic idea. Uh, and uh, I think China understands that very well. So that's the sense in which I think China is very constructive in this. Uh, there will be others, and uh, I was going to be in... Uh, China at the same time that President Lula was to arrive, but he postponed his trip because uh, uh, he was uh, ill and he's coming in mid-April. But Lula actually uh, aims to, and I think can, play a meaningful role in uh, pushing the U.S. and Russia to real negotiation over these critical mm -hmm. issues. And uh, the relations of China and Brazil will be very, very strong. Uh, so I, I think China's role is real in this. Uh, I don't think it's going to be 
orchestrating a, a full public diplomacy, but I think it will be playing an important role uh, quietly as it does to say, look, the basis for this war to end starts with the U.S. and Russia, and it starts with NATO dropping what has been the neocon project for 30 years now, uh, which is uh, the relentless expansion of the U.S. military alliance. And I actually believe that's the basis for ending this war at the negotiating table. So I think China will play a, a, a very important, quiet role in that regard. But, you know, of all of the things that uh, have happened in the, and as you mentioned, I think the rapprochement of Saudi Arabia and Iran is both remarkable. It is a great diplomatic achievement also of China, but it's also the way of the world, in my view, which is that if neighbors actually get along with each other, uh, this world could actually solve a lot of problems. And neighbors can... Uh, you know, cooperate on many very practical economic things. And that, to my mind, is what's taking shape. And what we ought to watch is, you know, the neighbors, India and China, but also the neighbors, China, Japan and Korea, because that's another one that's going to change it. Right now, mm -hmm. the U.S. alignment is Japan and Korea have to be, you know, rapidly anti-Chinese. But watch that, uh, watch that screen. That's going to change also in the next couple of years. A lot of Koreans are saying to me how incredibly unhappy they are with the uh, hard line that the U.S. is pushing Korea to take vis-a-vis -vis China. And I think that that's the next one that's uh, actually going to start to change. And once Northeast Asia is not this U.S.-China divide, that's going to be a, another uh, tremendous uh, uh, step in uh, in this new multipolar world, and I think it's going to happen. I, I was I visited Korea about twenty years ago, South Korea. I should make it clear, and I, I was struck even then by how close you know influence the influence of China was with Korea how well these two countries know know each other already you know millennial history and to to think that you can just sort of manipulate the relationship between these two countries to no, it's crazy because uh, you know I, I go to the I go to the three countries all the time uh, know the leaders uh, uh, in all three mm -hmm. If they would get together, my God, the powerhouse of China, Japan, and Korea, technologically, economically, financially, unbelievable. Mm. Uh, it's so good, it's going to happen, actually. Yeah, I agree with that, actually. And uh, we, we were talking about Japan, and it's making some moves of its own, because it's now opting out of the oil price caps. It's got, uh, you know, the, the oil price caps on the Russians that... Uh, the U.S. is imposing. Does anybody in the United States, you know, at a sort of senior level, quite understand that this bullying policy is actually weakening the U.S.'s positions instead of strengthening them? And that, in fact, the U.S. has huge opportunities here for itself if it would just drop this and change its approach I mean, I read actually somewhere that uh, it was a Chinese thing that, you know, China's rise economically is an opportunity for the United States, as it should be for everybody. 
the, the short answer is no. <laughs> I haven't seen any any glimmer of insight right now uh, in in the kind of East Coast university think tanks, and certainly in Washington to talk about insight is uh, is is the first oxymoron. Uh, there isn't right now. It's a little weird. Uh, it, it it is. <laughs> We're in a time warp, actually, in the U.S. right now. There's so little understanding. There's so much snarling. There's so little recognition of how deeply off track the foreign policy is. Uh, uh, there are voices uh, around, but not much wisdom right now. So I'm you know, hoping that somehow we uh, muddle through this very difficult period and and a couple politicians uh, have the guts to start or have the insight to start uh, understanding things aren't working right. And maybe it is. A, I don't know what it is, I, I, but I can tell you it's pretty, pretty dispiriting. Uh, also in the university context, because the U.S. is dotted with think tanks and the think tanks are all pretty much neocon oriented. Uh, at the at the major universities, and it hasn't really broken through that that this makes no sense. As I'm sorry to say it. I wish I could tell you, you know, behind the scenes, everyone knows, but it's uh, it it's it's a pretty low level discussion right now. Because the, the other thing is, I I also read some of the reports that come from these think tanks, and two things come through to me always, always these very complicated geopolitical chess games, which I always find fantastic in themselves, yes. but also very little discussion ever of economics. You know, when they talk about these chess games, the, the assumption is, yes, we can do all of these things, but very little understanding, you know, that economics is ultimately what determines everything. And what also places limits on what you can do. It's as if these chess games are played in some kind of isolation. You know, there, there's a there's a huge naivete and maybe a, a kind of underlying racism, though it's not quite the right term. It's a little sharp, mm. but there there is a deep feeling that whatever China did it must have cheated to do it. Uh, and uh, that's almost uh, taken as granted, uh, taken for granted. It's, it's, it's the weirdest thing. You know, I've been traveling to China for 40 years now. Uh, a lot of Chinese students, a lot of supervised dissertations and research projects and so on. And I've watched the hard work, the intelligent planning, the incredible uh, foresight that China has shown for 40 years in, in this economic success. And yet the, the line, it's all dismissed. And it's dismissed by, you know, even the academics. Uh, and so there's a, this is part of the self-aggrandizing uh, fallacy that prevents the clear thinking. Well, all we have to do is turn off this switch or stop them from cheating on this and then, and, and then the game is up for them. And that's why you see all these naive moves of, you know, we'll put on a sanction here. We'll stop them from getting semiconductors here. We'll squeeze Huawei here. And it's unbelievably naive, but it's the similar motivation 
to the sanctions against Russia or the sanctions against Venezuela, which is the, it starts with the kind of arrogance that we're the only ones that know how to do anything. So all we have to do is flip a switch and the others just collapse and they forget there's actually real people, smart people all over the place that know how to do a lot of things and that technology flows, technology is shared, technology moves in all different directions. And this is the biggest single misunderstanding of the U.S. scene right now is the sense we're still in charge because we're the ones that know how to do things. And we see every day it's all bollocked up. I have to say very briefly that if you go to late imperial Britain, it was not exactly the same. The British understood that they were, uh, you know, that they were being overtaken and they looked for friends. They, yeah. they, there was even a famous speech by, you know, Joseph Chamberlain, you know, that we're the weary Atlas. We can't carry the burden of the globe anymore. He was, he was the colonial secretary at the time. There doesn't seem to be anyone like that in the United States with his kind of power at the moment. And, you know, one wonders why that is. You know, I, I read, uh, I've been rereading uh, Robert Kagan, the, uh, you know, the, the great ideologue of the neocons, uh, really a horrible book, uh, 2018. I, I think we've discussed it, uh, The Jungle Grows yeah. Back. And it's uh, about U.S. Uh, liberal hegemony and all the rest. But I, I understand from rereading it where the complete misperception comes in, which is that the U.S., the world for the U.S. is overwhelmingly the U.S., and then there's Europe, and then there's Japan, and the rest is a kind of haze, which doesn't quite have the right to be there. And China's, uh, you know, uh, where they come from? But no deep recognition that the West, so-called, uh, is 15% of the world population in a world where technology is going everywhere very, very quickly. Uh, and, you know, I was in, uh, in India just after, uh, um, after China and for a G20 meeting. Uh, and uh, in the pavilion was demonstrations of uh, India's digital things. And I was saying, God, I wish I could do this stuff in New York City. You know what they're doing out, out in the rural areas of India with their digital lockers and their e-payment systems and everything else is is absolutely remarkable. Yeah. And uh, this is the real point of everything that we're seeing uh, there isn't a Western-led world anymore. There is a world, and and the technology is flowing everywhere, and you can find it in remote villages in Africa as well, though still lagging far behind. But you definitely see it in, I mean, in China, it's daily life. In India, the breakthroughs are coming quickly. That's the real world. That's the geopolitical world because that's the real world. Yeah. Uh, and and that's why everything else about we will write the rules of the game, which Americans still say openly, is just bizarre, actually. 
There, there is the real world, and there is the world, not the West, it's the, the world altogether. We've, we've come up to our 30 minutes, Professor Sachs. Can I say that was an amazing programme. Uh, thank you very much for joining us, Alex. And uh, I, I just want to know, Professor, Sa yeah, Professor Sachs, can I shoot two messages your way? Absolutely. Okay, okay, two, two or three messages. Um, a lot of people are asking, uh, from P. Cooper, for example, how far away is the new fiat system? And Jungle Jin wants to know if central banks like the ECB can actually fail. <laughs> central banks can uh, print money, but uh, if their money fails, uh, they get hyperinflation when they do so. So there have been a lot of failed central banks in, in history. I've uh, dealt with a number of them trying to resurrect them. We're we're within 10 years of a new international monetary system. We see it taking shape before our eyes. The dominance of the dollar, which is a lot of uh, the American perception of its dominance of power, is, uh, is an obsolescing bargain, as we say in economics. It's going away. Uh, my colleagues think, oh, 30 or 40 years, I'd say less than 10 years, because the uh, moves geopolitically combined with the technological transformation to digital currencies, meaning you don't have to go through SWIFT. We're going to have central bank digital currencies and we're going to have a multi-currency world. My guess is within 10 years, we're in a very different international monetary system. All right. And Alan wants to know why are why why do Eastern countries not dump the dollar like Syria, Lebanon, Egypt and so on? They're going to. Uh, this is happening uh, before our eyes, actually. There's more and more bilateral settlements in rupees, in rubles, in renminbi. Uh, it's, it's happening very fast. Uh, again, you know, there are established systems uh, and so on. But if it's a, a guess, is this closer to 30 or 40 years or is this closer to five to 10 years? I definitely give it the five to 10 year period. And uh, like in so many other things, the renminbi is going to be a big part of this story. All right. Fantastic. Professor Jeffrey Sachs, Director, Columbia University, the Center for Sustainable Development. I will have a link to that website in the description box down below, as well as a pinned comment. Thank you very much, Jeffrey Sachs, once again, for your time. Yeah, it is very appreciated. Thank you, Alexander. Thank you to all our moderators and to everyone who watched us on this live stream. Take care. Bye-bye.